This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to the Highlands, where we are in a stunning location, close by the Murray Firth in the seaside town of Nairn, or as I've been told some people say locally, Nairn. I hope that... Is that about right? How ingratiating can you get? We are, the, we are here as the guests of the Nairn Rotary at the Community and Arts Centre, where there's an annual books and arts festival in the autumn, and where in the rest of the year you can join, among other things, exercise classes and toddler groups, which, as I was going to say, takes us to our panel. Um, on this occasion, three politicians. Richard Leonards, the leader of the somewhat diminished Labour Party in the Scottish Parliament, originally from North Yorkshire. He came to study in Scotland and couldn't tear himself away. Joanna Cherry has been one of this nation's leading QCs until politics seized her full time. She now speaks for the SNP in the Westminster Parliament on justice and home affairs. Daniel Hannan was not so long ago the first director of the Eurosceptic think tank, now chaired by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the European Research Group. For almost 20 years now, he's been a Conservative member of the European Parliament. Bertie Armstrong is not a politician, though he's much engaged with politicians. He served in the Royal Navy, latterly as the harbour master at the Fast Lane naval base from where Britain's nuclear fleet sallies forth into the oceans of the world. In 2005, though, he joined the Scottish Fishermen's Federation as chief executive. The federation represents the owners of some 500 boats, from the smallest inshore vessels to those that travel far and wide. Our panel. And our first question, please. Christopher Ince. Where is the best place for the British or ex-British ISIS terrorists? Is it Guantanamo Bay, the International Court in The Hague, or the Old Bailey? There is... Everyone seems to be taking different views. There's a real standoff between the British government and the US Defence Secretary about this. Dan Hannan. Of those three, the Old Bailey. These are people who have crossed the world in order to take up arms against this country, its allies, and its interests. They've repudiated their nationality in the clearest possible way, but that doesn't mean that we should repudiate our responsibility to the rule of law and to a fair justice system. It may be that there are cases of mistaken identity or people who went out to work as medical volunteers and got captured by a militia or whatever, and all of that should be perfectly uh, openly heard and assessed. But those who have been part of the ISIS militias, I mean, nobody could have gone out without knowing what was involved, the beheadings, the torture of children, the killing of aid workers. Those people deserve the full force of the law. Uh, What do you make of what the Defence Secretary, Gavin Williams, said? Um, He said, uh, caused quite a lot of stir at the time, a dead terrorist can't cause any harm to Britain. I do not believe, this is as Mm. in his present role, I do not believe that any terrorist, whether they come from this country or any other, should ever be allowed back into this country. Well, if they're allowed back in, it should be in prison. But, I, I mean, to be honest, I think it probably was the case that some British passport holders were vaporised while, as it were, fighting against us. Because, of course, when they're on the battlefield, they are foregoing the rules of justice and they become enemy combatants. So you'd like, and I'm so you'd not like, going to be so shedding like any Mr. tears Sorry. over those who did that. So you'd like the Defence Secretary, Mr Williamson, to, to um, alter his stance in dealing no, I, I with, think... with, the, with, the, with the US Defence Secretary. He was saying 
they must go back, rather like you're saying, to their countries of origin. Yeah, but the ones who don't get to come back because they're left lying in the, in the deserts in Syria, I, I, you know, the, bring out the world's smallest violin for them. Uh, Joanna Cherry. Well, you'll not be surprised, Jonathan, that as a lawyer, I believe that they should be tried in a court of law, not sent to Guantanamo Bay, and that they should uh, receive due process. What distinguishes us from them is that we remain, we hold a belief in the rule of law and we remain civilised. I think probably the best place for them is the International Court of Justice, because they have committed war crimes against nationals from a number of, of different states. So I would say International Court of Justice on trial for war crimes. We've seen how effective the International Court can be in recent years, finally caught up and brought justice to uh, those guilty of the genocide in the former Yugoslavia. Um, I don't agree with Gavin Williamson. Uh, he came in for a lot of criticism from his own side for what he said. I think it ill behoves a British minister, our defence secretary, to indulge in such language. Um, we mustn't give in to terrorism and we must continue our belief in, in the rule of law and due process. Several uh, specialists in the field have commented that at the, at the Hague... Um, more people have died while they're still being tried than have actually been convicted because the court takes so long. So be it, is the lawyer's response? Well, I think the court sometimes has, take a, has taken a long time to uh, catch up with people, but uh, better late than never where, where justice is concerned. But I don't see any reason why it should take such a long time this time. Some of these people are now in captivity. They could be brought to the international court, and, and these are young men, a lot of them, and their, their trials could uh, progress with all due expedition. Um, Bertie. The, Bertie Armstrong, I should say. Thank you. As a consumer of the law uh, rather than a politician, it strikes me there are two aspects here. One is public safety. And, and the returning jihadis, what will happen when they come back? And two is the application of justice. And I would agree with the other two speakers, although they, 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 they vary on, on what sort of justice. Uh, well, justice... One, one doesn't mind if they I don't want to say what Daniel Hannan put words about, you wouldn't mind if they, as it were, got shot while they were there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't cry... Well, while they're in Syria, they are enemy combatants. A different set of rules apply. Once they are in our custody, of course we have to apply due process. But yeah. if in Syria someone knocks them out, whoever that is, so be it. Then, you know, absolutely good. Even though they're being held by the Kurds. Well, if, if they are enemy combatants, and well, if they're not in our custody, they don't, the, the issue doesn't arise. But if they're, if they're enemy combatants who have gone out, I mean, nobody could have gone out innocently not knowing the nature of Islamic State, not knowing the, 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 the monstrosities it was involved with. A peculiar kind of twisted, monstrous individual wants to do that. You know what? They're taking the risks, and if they don't come back, do you know, I'm not shedding any tears. There is, there is the, uh, that... The instinct uh, behind all that is well understood. The other thing is the rule of law. There, there's, there was recently uh, a very public case of, of a Royal Marine who uh, was, was uh, found guilty. There was much legal machinations after it was found guilty of murder. Uh, uh, if the rule of law is to prevail, then, then we must live by the rule of law in combat as well. Now, that doesn't mean you don't shoot anybody in, in, by any stretch of the imagination, but it does mean that, that, that uh, it, it, it does not become an alternative to capture. Richard Leonard. Well, this is um, a choice between civilization and barbarism. It's a choice between uh, the rule of law or lawlessness, and it's a choice between democracy or dictatorship, and that is the reason why I think Guantanamo Bay 
uh, should never have existed in the first place. And it's certainly not uh, the kind of... It's certainly not the kind of way in which any kind of civilised society would treat people. So um, the first thing uh, I want to say is that we need to be clear about which side of those dividing lines we're on. And sometimes if we get slightly confused, uh, that's when we end up in all kinds of difficulties. As far as Christopher's direct question is concerned about where uh, that uh, rule of law should be applied, uh, I think there is a a compelling case, in theory anyway, for that being uh, the Hague. Uh, which is um, a scene of uh, uh, war crime uh, tribunals. But I do also take the point uh, that um, it simply is not uh, perhaps a good idea to snarl up The Hague with a huge backlog of cases. And so if there are other jurisdictions in which that, uh, th- those trials can take place, then I think they should be conducted there, and that may therefore be here. A set of dilemmas posed there which you may wish to take a view about in any answers after the Saturday broadcast of this program. Anita Arnand will be there. The number is 03 700 100 444. It's worth getting in early. The line's open at 12.30. Email any.answers at bbc.co.uk. Tweet. The hashtag is BBCAQ. And we, please, will go to our next. Graham Vine. Leaving aside the costs and desirability... How can school children's meals 365 days per year be delivered? When you say be delivered, you're not talking in sort of terms of, of, of the transport. You're talking about finance? No. How, how do you physically feed school children 365 days a year when the schools are closed for a third of that time? Joanna Cherry. This is, I should just say, for those who, so those who, aren't, who, are, who, are, who aren't acquainted with this, North Lanarkshire Council is introducing a scheme which they say will uh, deal with the consequences of what they describe as holiday hunger. Um, weekends and during the holidays, 365 days mm. a year, to make sure that those on the lowest incomes don't go hungry or eat very poor food. Sorry. Yes, thank you. Well, it's a very interesting question. Of course, in Scotland, we have free school meals for primary one to three, but that's when they're at school, in the classroom. I think the question you're posing, sir, is how do we do it for the days when they're not in school and they're not in the classroom? And there have been a number of projects piloted in various parts uh, in Scotland and also uh, south of the border to feed children who are in food poverty uh, during the school holidays and at weekends. And anyone who's a school teacher will tell you that some children do come to school hungry and some children come to school without having had a proper breakfast. And of course, when a kid's at school without a proper breakfast, it affects their concentration. And generally speaking, I'm sad to say, and I as an MP see this, food poverty in this country is growing. I have a number of constituents who come to meet my surgeries who are working people, working hard, but on low incomes, who are unable to feed their family for the last few days of the month, and I have to refer them on to to food banks in Edinburgh. So this is a very real issue, and I think it's something that we, we should address as a society, because it's all about lifting children out of poverty, which is what we should be about in Scotland and indeed across the UK. Now, the Scottish Government has gone uh, some way to tackle child poverty and has brought back in targets, which the UK Government got rid of. But practical steps, I think, can be taken, and it's really a question of getting our priorities right. Can you imagine the Scottish Government financing 365 days a year, and it's being done by the North Lanarkshire Council, throughout the country? 
Well, we've just had a, a budget process from the Scottish Government uh, when the Scottish Government, whose uh, budget has been cut in real terms by £2.6 billion from Westminster. So this, my colleague Derek Mackay, the Finance Minister, has had to uh, be very careful in the way that he... Um, he, he balances his budget. So I'm not sure that the Scottish Government could afford to fund a project like that across the country. But I think it's something we should be talking about as a society and good on any council that has a, a pilot project on it. Good luck to them, I would say. For, for those who are listening outside Scotland, the, 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 the NUT did a, a survey of its teachers and said that 80% of the teachers in England had noticed, to use the same term, holiday hunger. Daniel Hannan. It would be very easy to get a round of applause by saying, of course, we should feed every child 365 days a year. But governments are very bad at doing these things. What makes us think that a government agency would be any better at distributing food on that scale than governments were at building cars or running airlines or installing phones in the days when they used to do that? Imagine that there was no plan. If it was all just left to sort itself out, how would that work? Well, that's kind of more or less what happens with food now. And do you see what happens is that it gets cheaper and more available over time. And it solves, if you like, the problem of affordability. The percentage that we're spending of our incomes on food now would have been unbelievable to our grandparents, uh, given the, the, the number of hours we have to work, if you like, to afford something. Think of the, the miracle that happens when you buy, I don't know, a... a can of baked beans. Think of everything that's gone into it. Not just the beans and the tomatoes, but, you know, the, the smelted metal for the tin and the, the, the tree that was felled to make the paper and the, the guy who drove it to the okay, shop okay. on your okay. corner. Yeah, and then ponder the extraordinary fact that that can of beans is available for purchase for the equivalent of 19 minutes' work on the minimum wage. Now, you Are find you me saying, any sorry, government sorry, platform, hey, hey, any government hey, hey, program hey, has hey, done hey, more hey, to hey, alleviate poverty than the miracle about what, of cheap food. What, what you claim the government has done. Graham Vine is asking, um, how can you deal with this well, problem of delivering? You say you can, you can't. But it should, was implicit in... Uh, I, I detected a hint of scepticism, maybe wrongly from Graham, but it was implicit in his question that this is a, uh, an undertaking which, although it's sort of worthy in its ideals, is not practicable. OK. Um, Bertie Armstrong... The, uh, Graham did uh, introduce the subject by saying, let's, let's leave aside for one second the costs and viability. But unfortunately, in this sort of thing, you can't. There's, there's a great deal of discussion uh, about um, distribution of resource that's either uh, limited or not available at all. And, and uh, child poverty, it would be very unwise for any of the panel members, including me, to argue that you should not feed a hungry child. Of course not. But there, there, there are choices to be made. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that did surprise me was the, the apparent figure. I think North Lanarkshire said they could do this for half a million pounds, which is, is in, the, in the overall scheme of things, a, a very small amount of money. So if it is possible, and, and uh, costs and viability actually are on the right side of realistic... Then, 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 of course, it would be a good thing to do, but it needs to be viewed in the right. The only problems that exist are not child hunger. There, there's, there's much more wrong with a family that... Uh, this is not, not a pejorative statement. There's much more wrong with a family that can't feed a child, and maybe there are other sorts of assistance or... Uh, well, that's a very uh, big uh, thing to say. Are you saying that those parents who either go to food banks or, in this case, uh, according to some of this evidence, are... Uh, send their ch children to school without adequate food and in the holidays 
don't have food themselves in order to give food for their children, that somehow they're getting it wrong in other ways? No, not at all. I did not say that. What I, what I, what I said was uh, um, that, that there may be other problems to address rather than the spot problem of, uh, of, of just feeding children. And in the inevitably painful uh, look at, at, at how resources distributed, there, there are other things to consider as well. But I did not say that, that, that I mean, there, there may be a, a number of reasons why this happens completely outside the control of, of the parents. That, that wouldn't make them, maybe there's only one of them. Maybe, maybe somebody's died. Uh, uh, maybe maybe there's, there's, there's a mental stability problem. Uh, no, no, there, there'd, be no, there'd be no criticism of the families. It's just inevitably we're going to have to look um, at, at, at costs and viability. And I would agree with Daniel. When the, we get to Brexit and we talk about what, what, well, what, you don't know what you're going to get there yet, but well, you I'm don't know rather, what the questions are. I, 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 you I, may guess. I'd be surprised, and I'll keep trying to drag it in that direction if I can, um, <laughs> uh, um, that, that, that really more economic activity to, to take away the problem is the ultimate answer, but not an easy one. Richard Leonard. Well, uh, to answer Graham's uh, question directly, the, um, mm. the proposal is that the, there'll be a trial scheme uh, running Coke Bridge, and... Uh, that will, I suppose, iron out um, how we get from uh, the school uh, weeks of the year through to the whole of the year. Uh, and uh, it's, um, uh, I think, as Joanna said earlier on, there are quite a number of local authorities now that uh, run holiday hunger schemes and so through the school kitchen service uh, provide uh, hot meals uh, for kids uh, right throughout the, uh, the year, uh, uh, maybe not up to and including Christmas Day at the moment, but maybe that's something for the future. But I think the, um, the, 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 the thing that strikes me about it is just the extent to which we now have ingrained child poverty. I mean, the, in Scotland, there are over 260,000 children living below the poverty line. And the, the staggering thing is that in those households, 70% of those kids live in households where at least one adult is in work. So the problem we've got is not poverty caused by unemployment, although we do have that, or poverty caused by underemployment, although we do have that. The problem is we've got a low-wage economy. And until we start driving up... And then until, until we start driving up uh, the wages... Especially, I have to say, the wages of uh, women workers, often in part-time jobs uh, on low pay in the caring uh, profession or in uh, catering, cleaning, clerical work, cashiering, working in retail, until we start to properly value those jobs, we'll continue to have uh, an endemic problem of poverty pay. But I think we need, to, uh, we need to lift our horizons and look at some of those root causes. Clearly, this is a proposal by a Labour-controlled local authority uh, to look at a way of ameliorating uh, the effects of child poverty. And, and for that, uh, I applaud them. Uh, perhaps it's a nod to uh, Jeremy Corbyn's recent speech when he was talking once again about municipal socialism. And uh, that might be an anathema to uh, some people on the panel. Uh, but the idea that we as a society have a responsibility for children, including those who live in poverty, I think is something uh, which is one to commend it. Uh, I take the view that uh, uh, poverty and inequality doesn't, doesn't just diminish those who are caught up in it. It diminishes us all. And so we should all have a responsibility to eradicate it from our society. Yes, but Bertie. Yeah, um, 
Richard correctly has described the, the broader problem as a low-wage economy, and, and that, of course, is correct. He then described that as the problem, and, and he said we should look at solutions, but offered, uh, uh, if, if, if I may say, none. I, I offer the solution... Living-wage economy. I, 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 offer, living I, offer, wage economy. I, offer, I offer the solution of increased economic activity. Let us focus on the engine that will provide the, the, the solution. Uh, otherwise, we end up in a, in a downward spiral of describing the problem in more and more lurid terms without ever arriving at a potential solution. Is that, Daniel Hannan, is there something... <laughs> is there somewhere something profoundly wrong, structurally wrong, that so many children appear to be very short of food or not eating properly in the year 2018? Well, first of all, can we take it as read that everyone in this room has a problem with child poverty, right? That no, no party has a monopoly on being concerned about children who are underprivileged. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, Richard is, is quite right to say the Labour Party is interested. Richard is the Labour leader in Scotland. Richard, if you're listening live on Friday, is the Labour leader in Scotland. They're getting through them at such a rate that if you're listening to the replay on Saturday, who knows where we'll be. But this is not a... Um, but it's, it's, uh, but it's not a monopoly of, of any party. And one thing that I think we, we can do, if we're talking specifically about the issue of affordability of food, right, prices that we pay for food now under the EU's common agricultural policy add up to 20% to our grocery bills. Now, there is a way, cost-free, that we could very significantly reduce the cost of living. Everybody will benefit, but by far the biggest benefit will be felt by low-income people because they spend the highest proportion of their weekly bill on groceries. Joanna Cherry. Um, Daniel says no party has a monopoly on child poverty. That's true, but Daniel's party at Westminster have done away with the targets whereby we measure child poverty to see whether we are tackling it or not. The, 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 Scottish, the Scottish government have, have reintroduced them, but this problem of child poverty is not an isolated poverty, an isolated problem... Children are poor when their parents are working because, as Richard has said, they are in the parents are on low incomes. And uh, Bertie mentioned Brexit. All the chaos around Brexit is actually disguising the fact of how badly the Tory party in London are running the economy. This isn't just my view. It's the view of the Resolution Foundation, who have warned that real household incomes are set to fall for an unprecedented 19th successive quarter, and the average earnings will not return till their to their 2007 level until 2025. Now, these are the consequences of Tory austerity and decisions taken by the Tory party in London, which haven't even led to them reaching their own goals of reducing the debt, deficit and borrowing. They've, they've missed all these goals and they've made the poorest people in society pay for a failed austerity experiment. And now they're going to pull us out of the single market with all the impact that will have on the jobs we have in this country. So I think we need to look at the political causes of poverty. And there are political causes and they lie at the door of your colleagues in London, Daniel. Anita Anand will surely want to hear more. 03 700 100 444. Any answers after the Saturday broadcast of this question? To our next, please. Roland Stewart, what effect will Brexit have on our fishing industry and will it benefit us consumers? Oh, this was the one you were waiting for so patiently. <laughs> Chief Executive of the Scottish Fishermen's Federation. Just a very brief observation. Fishermen's Federation, are they not yet 
any women who we go have, fishing professionally? We have just employed last week um, a female Italian scientist to be our in-house scientist in the Scottish Fishermen's Federation. So we should maybe start referring to it as the Scottish Fisher Persons Federation. You've got a long soon. way. You, you, you've got a long way to go yet. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, um, so to the question itself. And, and I thank Roland for the purity of that question. <laughs> thank you very much. Um, we have received in in the United Kingdom the roughest of rough deals uh, are from the Common Fisheries Policy on fishing. Uh, but by that I mean the the uh, the amount of, if you like. Uh, a resource that grows in our farm that we are allowed to, to, to farm ourselves is very small. From our waters, 60% of the fish that leave do so in the beneficial hands of uh, other EU fishing nations than the UK. We keep 40%, 60% goes to the neighbours. That was a political settlement way back in the, uh, in, in the early 70s when we joined the, the EC. Comparative figures for large coastal states... Uh, uh, in the northeast Atlantic are uh, Iceland keeps 90% of the fish that grow in its, in its exclusive zone, in its waters, and the, the comparative figure in, uh, in Norway is they, they keep everything but 16%. So that is the prize. If you like, what we've been describing is the sea of opportunity that, that when we uh, normalize the governance of our waters, and it's, it's, it's not a take back, it's not a negotiation point, when we normalize uh, uh, the governance of our waters, we will be able to move towards a position where we harvest what grows on our farm rather than give it away. So, so, so it, your, your, your vision is that from 40% that you keep, you would keep 100%. That no, no coastal state does that because there are justifiable reasons for the coastal state which has first call on, on its own resource may wish to exchange some for something else, not outside fishing, for, for, for something else with regard to fishing, like access, uh, a small amount of access uh, that we would more easily enjoy. Or uh, uh, one example that I think we used in the, in, in the conversation earlier was... Uh, if, for instance, juvenile fish grow in somebody else's EEZ, that's where the spawning grounds are, uh, but, the, but most of the mature fish are in ours, we, we may wish to award that country um, a small catch of the, of the mature fish to keep them off the, the juveniles. That well, sort well, of thing, but small, small tonnages. We'd le- like to keep with those fish which grow in our waters. One more thing before I get to yours. Mm. It, it's clear, A, you want Brexit. Yes. B, I think you said it can only work if we get out on day one. Well, what does that mean? Um, you mean come March 2019, what, out, that's it, yes. new world order? What, what, what I mean is the change of governance that will take place when, when we become a coastal state under United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, when that happens on the 29th of March, there must be, in our view, in the view of the industry, no political settlement which says, no, we're not going to do that. We will, we will run things exactly as, as uh No as, transition as period for fishing, is what you're um, saying. There, we, have been, we have been recommending, for practical purposes, a nine-month bridge. We've deliberately called it something different from a transition period, uh, uh, a nine-month bridge, because the, the catching opportunity 
for the year of 2019, the whole of 2019, will be set at the end of this year, by, when we're still in Europe, and, and, and then come the 29th of March, we become a coastal state. At the end of that year, there will be a series of negotiations where we will be in charge of our own affairs. Uh, uh, the, the, the important part about taking charge on the moment of Brexit means we can be as kind or as unkind as we like, depending on how the negotiations go. So, so for you and your federation, there's no such significant thing as a cliff edge. It's just a, a, a wander down the sand into the gentle stream. Uh, no, we'd like it to be much more rapid than that, but we are realistic. There are some who are advocating the cliff edge. We do not, because that would be destructive and hard to cope with. The, the only cliff edge that will appear is, is if there is absolutely no deal and, and, and we march away, uh, uh, on, and then you'll on, be fine. The, then, then, then we'll have all the fish and no access. But we're, we're genuinely not advocating that. We don't think that'll go well. Uh, Richard Leonard. <laughs> well, I think that, uh, that Brexit uh, will happen. Uh, and I think that we will therefore leave uh, the common fisheries uh, policy. Uh, but I do uh, sound a note of warning to Bertie that it may not be all quite so straightforward as he thinks. Because... I um, have watched, uh, at some distance, I have to admit, uh, the negotiations taking place uh, in Brussels led by the uh, current Conservative government, uh, and I'm not convinced at all uh, that they wouldn't be prepared to sacrifice some of the benefits which Bertie sees for the fishing industry in order to strike a deal overall on trade. And so um, I am just a little bit more cautious about trusting the Tories to negotiate uh, something which is going to benefit uh, the Scottish fishing industry. I also am cognizant of the fact that if you were to walk uh, not too far away from here to speak to people who are in the fish processing industry, they would take a very different view because they are concerned uh, about the uh, access that they have currently got uh, to migrant labour. Now, I am somebody who worked uh, for many years in the trade union movement and I am extremely wary as well uh, of uh, people arguing for the freedom of movement of cheap labour and we should guard against that at all times. But I do think that there are clearly uh, economic shocks uh, that will arise as a result of Brexit and simply uh, seeing that there is uh, a better future for the fishing industry, which there may be, as a result of us leaving the European Union, I think cannot then overlook all of those other potential hazards and threats which there will be. Of course okay. we've got... Sorry, go on, you can do one more. Well, uh, so, uh, of, of course we've got to look to see where there may be opportunities, uh, but I didn't campaign for a Remain vote uh, because I thought it was going to be uh, a better economic future outside of the EU. I think, like many people... I campaigned for a Remain vote because I felt that we have been integrated economically with the EU for 45 years and to withdraw from that is going to cost us economically at least in the short term. Joanna Cherry. Well, look, I understand why Bertie and many of his members don't like the common fisheries policy. It's not been a good thing for fishermen in Scotland. Fishing was treated as expendable back in the 70s by the Tory government, and the Tories have rich form in selling out fishermen both north and south of the border. And that's why the SNP has long argued for reform of the common fisheries policy. However, catching the fish is only one half of the picture – what Bertie doesn't conveniently, conveniently for him, doesn't talk about is what you do with the fish when you've actually caught it, because you have to sell it, not just at home, but to foreign markets. 
and at present the majority of the fish caught off the seas of the United Kingdom is sold into the European Union, into the single market. And if we leave that single market, we are going to be faced with not just tariff barriers, not just tariffs on fish, but non-tariff barriers to do with food safety issues. Now, I believe that our approach to these matters should be evidence-based. And I sit on the Brexit Select Committee at the House of Commons, and we've heard evidence about these matters, and we've heard evidence from uh, Norwegians. Now, Norway's not in the Commons fisheries policy, but it is in the single market. It's in the European economic area, and it sells a huge amount of fish, the majority of its fish, into the single market. And the reason it's in the single market, not according to me, according to the Norwegians, is, and I quote, their fish was sitting rotting at the border because they couldn't, because they weren't complying with the regulations of the single market. So it's not as simple as we leave the European Union and everything will be rosy for the fishermen. And just on that particular point, um, what is your response to that? Charges effectively that you're forgetting about everything downstream from what, to use that horrible I, phrase, from yep. what you're doing when you catch them. I, I, there's about 10 points there. From well, just take, just take and, yep. a key one. Yep. The, the key one is this, and, and, and I can answer it with an example. If you stood on the jetty in Alapool or the jetty in Lerwick in, in uh, the, the uh, early 90s, you would see the horizon filled with Klondikers from Eastern Europe and Russia, buying all the pelagic fish from the Scottish industry. Pelagic meaning? Uh, midwater fish, herring, mackerel, blue whiting. If, if, you had, uh, if, if Joanna and Richard had been, had, had, had been sitting in the same place, then they would have said, we're doomed. If, if the market changes in the Eastern Europe and in, and in the East of Europe and in Russia, this is where all our fish go. We will, will not have a hope of survival. Well, the best part, uh, f- f- talking of financial stability of the fishing industry now, is the pelagic industry. Um, so we, we saw a market come and go, and, and we weathered that storm very well. And that's a practical business example of doing that. If you... Uh, but, so it, forgive it, me, do you, is it desirable to have to weather storms? No, it, it, it is not desirable to, to have to weather storms, but it is highly desirable to uplift the amount of raw material which we've got which I've described and which nobody disagrees with and to say that if I have if I have a highly desired product I will be able to sell this elsewhere and I've given a practical example and there are two or three okay. others well, the thing is we have established markets Bertie we have an established market for UK fish in the single market just as Norway does but it's not just the pelagic fish, it's also salmon. Salmon is a massive export for Scotland. In fact, Scotland's food and drink exports to the European Union are one of our huge growth areas. And I can tell you, people in the food and drink industry, I meet with them regularly at Westminster, they do not want to leave the single market. But to take the example of salmon, there are very high tariffs on processed fish. Norway is sending its salmon whole into countries in the European Union to be processed. As Richard has just said, there are a large amount of jobs in Scotland uh, dependent on not just catching the salmon or farming the salmon, but also processing it. If we leave the single market, then those jobs will go elsewhere. So what Bertie is, is positing is some sort of pie-in-the-sky hope for something that doesn't actually exist at the moment at the expense of giving up our established and existing markets. That's why it's in the interests of fishermen, as it is indeed for everyone in Scotland and the United Kingdom, to stay in the single market. Yeah. Cool. Well, 
I, I, I just let me, let me let me bring in Daniel Hannan. You can come in, Daniel Hannan. I, I think I read. Bertie will correct me if this is wrong. That we sell more salmon to Taiwan than to any single EU state. And again and again in this debate, people are forgetting that there is a whole world out there. If only we would raise our eyes to more distant horizons. But to to answer the the specific question, fisheries ought to be a great renewable resource for the United Kingdom. Other countries that control and manage their own territorial waters have been able to treat it in that way. Iceland, Norway, New Zealand, the Falkland Islands. The big exception is the European Union, which has presided over an ecological calamity because of rules that define fisheries, define all fish stocks, as a common resource to which all member states have what is the, equal just, access. Just, just briefly, when you say calamity, what the are you calamity describing? Because the there, aren't there, there a whole many laws and rules protecting fish there's stock? Been a, because there's been a collapse in stocks, and it's wiped out the UK-British industry, which has been uniquely adversely affected, because under international law, under maritime law, we're allowed to fish out to 200 miles or the median line, whichever is closer. That puts the majority of North Sea fish in UK waters, but we do not have a quota that reflects anything like where those fish are. And you heard the figures uh, that Bertie quoted earlier from a study in Sheffield, uh, sorry, in, 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 the, in the Shetland Islands, that of, our, of all the fish uh, caught in our waters, 60% okay. are landed by the rest of the EU. Now, surely, surely we can do better than that. Yes, recognise the rights of other countries, let them come, but let them come under our laws and operating according to our quota briefly, so that we briefly, have a renewable Bertie, resource. Bertie Armstrong from the... All, we've got someone, someone okay, who's someone's and, tweeted here saying, and I, I, will, prefer, I prefer the, fo- the, the, the term Fisher Folk. So from the Fisher <laughs> Folk Federation. Yeah, the Fisher Folk Federation. Um, yeah. or, what Joanna did there was repeat her, her previous point with bells on, saying we're all going to die if we lose the single market. One piece of advice we had from Norway right at the beginning, we went to see them straight away after the referendum, was do not enter into deals with the European Union. They will become per- uh, uh, permanent. And I would reinforce the point, there are 165 nations in the world Half of them, or considerably more than half of them, are not in the EU. Many of them are fishing nations, and they're doing fine. We need to lift our eyes. We will find new markets, uh, because the product, the product will sell itself. (laughs) Joanna Cherry would stay inside the single market and the customs union. Um, You, uh, Richard Leonard, would be out of the single market. You're taking, in the context of you taking to, to task the, the, the Tory government, which most people see as being totally at sixes and sevens on this, not knowing what it wants, is the, the common judgment, correctly or incorrectly. Um, um, you want, though you say there's a compelling, pace, play, compelling case for staying inside the customs union, but your leader doesn't seem to be compelled to that view at all. Well, what, what we've said all along is that we want to have access to the single market and access to the customs union. Well, of course you and do. We Everyone want, wants that. And, and we want... Yeah, it, I mean, that's like and, saying and we, we want... want to, and we want that negotiated as a bespoke deal. And I think that there is, a, there is a large amount of consensus, certainly in Scottish politics, around that. And the SNP in their recent uh, publication uh, looking at the, uh, the impact of a hard Brexit uh, seemed to settle on that same conclusion, that we need to negotiate a bespoke agreement that allows us to gain access to the single no, no, market no, and the custom use. to be in the single market. This notion of access to the single market is nonsense. You're either in the single market by membership of the European Union or like, or, like, or like Norway, 
membership of the European Economic Area. Well, look, here's something that, that Daniel said uh, during uh, the EU referendum. He said, nobody's talking about leaving the single market. Nobody's talking so quote, about... quote what I said immediately before that, because it's only fair to give the context. Is it, you don't know. I mean, I'm sure she, I, well, I can, probably, I I'm sure she notes everything you say, but that's well, rather terrible thing. That is, that, hang that, on, Daniel. That's one of those no, kind no, of no society lines on, that is quoted to mean the opposite of what I was saying if you watch the Hang on, Daniel. You... Farage and other prominent levers often talked about the Norway or the Switzerland model. Norway is in the European economic area. So you may think you've tricked me by saying I haven't given the full quote. You talked about the Norway model as Farage did. Nobody necessarily knew that voting to leave the European Union meant voting to leave the single market. Plus, plus... Okay, but hang on. In that in that particular plus, interview, I, get, I listed well, a whole if, if bunch of just, European if, countries. If I may just finish, as I've been shouted the down there, because I'd, I'd like to finish okay. my point we, we, rather than we, be shouted we down. We are going to pause just just there, and um, we do discuss this from time to time in this program. I can't remember the last occasion on which we didn't discuss it. Um, we're going to go on to our next question, please. Jennifer. Oh, we're not. I'm sorry. It's a Facebook question that someone is about to come in there. The Facebook question comes from Alistair Haley. And the question was, why did a homeless person die outside Parliament? Why do politicians seem incapable of actually focusing on solutions to problems rather than slinging mud? That individual died in the full glare, as it were, of parliamentary attention just outside the tube station near, near Parliament on Wednesday. Um, you're a politician, Daniel Hannan. Well, the answer is I don't know in that particular case. There are a lot of contributing factors, generally, before somebody becomes homeless. When I was first elected, uh, I spent a night in a homeless shelter and saw a number of the issues that contributed. Nobody becomes homeless overnight. There's issues to do with family breakdown, substance abuse, low qualifications, a whole bunch of things that get you to that state. And, and it would be facile to say we can wave a wand and uh, make this go away by supplying you know, more beds or something. There's a, there's a, there's a deeper issue than that. Uh, which, and I don't know which of those factors was involved in this case. But one thing which I do think we need to do as a, as a country... Uh, not just to, to tackle cases of, of rough sleeping, but to tackle the bigger issue of uh, families who are struggling to afford housing on a permanent basis is build more houses. We've made it a very, very difficult thing. To, we have some of the, the, the tightest laws in the world, and I think we've got to the point where that is causing so much difficulty to young people that we need to address that underlying factor. And I'm glad to say that that is now under review, uh, that the housing ministry is looking at ways in which we can change our planning laws, and I think we can find a more equitable way of doing things than now. Joanna Cherry. Well, I mean, words fail me to think of that man dying uh, in vicinity of Westminster. Like Daniel, I don't know what the particular issues were for that gentleman. But certainly, the number of people sleeping homeless on the streets across the United Kingdom is not acceptable, and politicians must take action to tackle that. Now, my colleagues at Holyrood have set up a £50 million fund to tackle homelessness, and they're working closely with organisations like Shelter, uh, Crisis, and Social Bite. 
But there is an issue about a lack of affordable housing in this country. Fortunately, it's not as acute in Scotland as elsewhere. That's because in the last Parliament, the SNP built 33,000 new affordable homes. I'm afraid to say that Richard's colleagues, the previous Labour government, had built only six council houses. Now, we know from reading the newspapers today that many, many young people can't afford to buy a home, but we do need affordable housing for social rent. And we also need security of tenure for people who are in the private rented sector. Margaret Thatcher brought in those short-assured tenancies years ago, and I'm glad to say we've now got rid of those in Scotland and we have security of tenure under the new Private Residential Tenancy Act. And uh, Richard Leonard. Yeah, again, I don't know the details of this this particular case, but often people find themselves uh, not just homeless, but uh, rough sleeping on the streets and therefore exposing themselves to uh, a much greater uh, likelihood of, uh, of either serious illness or even, in this case, death. Uh, and there are, there are often underlying reasons around... Uh, it could be something that could happen to any of us around marital breakdown. It could be reasons of addiction. It could be uh, reasons of a broader mental health nature that forces people onto the, uh, in, into that situation. And I think uh, we need, as a society, to look at how we can best uh, address that. One of the, uh... I think one of the things that people noticed was, in purely in individual terms, here was this person lying there. I think the leader of your party pointed out this, lying there, and no one seemed to uh, ask him if they could help or come up to him and see what state he was in, and he just dies overnight. Yeah, well, I mean, um, um, Jeremy Corbyn was in uh, Scotland just before... Uh, Christmas and I was with him and one of the things that we were doing was speaking to uh, volunteers who were dispensing hot soup to people who were sleeping rough on the streets of Glasgow and the reason more and more of those community-led initiatives are happening is because we are once again seeing a rise in the number of people sleeping out on the streets and 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 we do have some of the best uh, anti-homelessness legislation in Western Europe but unless the resource is going behind it and unless decent accommodation is found for people, that, uh, that uh, story will keep repeating itself. Thank you. One of, one of, finally, John, one of the things which, which, which has been alerted to me recently, which I find extremely concerning, is just the standard. The standard of temporary accommodation which is offered to people in that situation is appalling. Uh, and I think there needs to be a massive investment in publicly funded housing, whether it's social housing through housing associations... Okay, I have Joanna, to stop you there. the route we went down I, before. I, I, sorry, I have to stop you there in order to give Bertie Armstrong a, a chance. So we're just about at the end of the programme. The, um, the uh, smallest of inputs there... I, I, Alistair's question was, was about the, the incongruous nature of the proximity to Parliament. And it's, it's the same as a drug deal beside a police station or a fire beside a fire station. It's, it's really the underlying problems are, are, are there, and we've discussed that, and, and the, 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 they're real. And the Proximity bits, bit of a red herring. Do you, from slightly outside politics, do you do you look at politicians and say, as some do, some do, who don't uh, perhaps appreciate why politicians are always doing it, why why don't they just sort out the problem yeah. rather than slinging mud? Well, I, in in this beautifully balanced panel here, Jonathan, I'm I'm the only non-politician connected with a produ- and, and I'm connected with a productive industry uh, uh, in, in in my day to day. So I'm all for practical solutions. Okay. Um, on this, uh, Anita Anand again, any answers? 03 700 100 444. Um, next week, we're going to be in Newcastle in the Centre for Life. Meanwhile, from there, in which 
demonstrates a wonderful life in the most beautiful part of the world. Thank you to our panel. Thank you to our audience. Uh, thank you to our hosts. And goodbye. I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions.